Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, it's great to be here. I received an invitation this week to produce a newsletter, the Chain Reaction, on LinkedIn. And I decided to go along with that because I thought it would be a useful way to communicate with people who follow the Chain Reaction Podcast and they could find out a little more about interesting stories that uh, were part of the chain reaction research. I suppose the first thing I came up with, faced with a blank page, was uh, interesting. Fashioning business success, I called it. And it took me back to a trip I made just before the 9-11 attack in New York. So some time back. But some of the principles and discussion were quite relevant. I wrote... I hesitate to write about business success. It's like writing about the Holy Grail. There are so many opinions and little evidence to determine what business success looks like. Nevertheless, given the caveat, write about business success, I will. In particular, I want to illustrate the central role that supply chains occupy in any successful strategy. The simple diagrammatic representation of a retail supply chain on this page shows how demand triggers action within supply chains. You'll have to look at the diagram on the newsletter if you want to see the diagram. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's not comprehensive, simply illustrative. There are design, sourcing and procurement stages that come before where this diagram begins. This part of the chain incurs cost, stroke investment, to deliver the rest of it. Without the prerequisites of design, sourcing and procurement, there is no business supply chain. I recall a trip to New York pre-COVID days just prior to 9-11 and entering the DKMY offices full of people working to design, procure and source manufacturing capacity from around the globe. Designers came up with garment designs and these were circulated to potential suppliers who bid for the contract. It was probably the first time I was struck by the power of the internet and the digital age with newly connected systems, technologies to manage global supply chains. Within a few hours, bids were gathering consideration from sourcing teams in New York from all around the globe, and procurement contracts were offered to successful bidders. The successful suppliers were now making samples for contract sign-off. Within days, they'd deliver samples, which once approved, would allow them to proceed to plan, make and deliver on the contracts they'd been awarded. Speaking to those involved at DKMY, they told me that the new digital age was bringing great benefits to their operation, reducing design to sample times from weeks to days. Production cycle times were also compressed to weeks rather than months. The bidding process had reduced contract costs significantly too. Didn't have to fly people, didn't have to spend hours, days in hotels and so on and so forth. This meant product could be moved to store faster, Cash flow cycles were reduced, profits were increased, and inventory risks lowered as a consequence of the improvements in supply chain management. It was win-win for the brand that got their products faster with reduced cost, and it meant suppliers did not have to wait months for a decision about the order. This was business success. Fashioning business success relies on the right combination of technical skills and application technologies. 
Having the technical competence to design, source and procure is the first stage in a process. Suppliers need to be skilled to meet customer demand. The need to have a set of skills within the workforce that allows them to respond quickly and flexibly to meet demand is required. This might mean training teams to adopt quick response strategies and to have flexible manufacturing systems or flexible supply strategies. This is what we call agility and it's necessary for resilient supply chains. Businesses connected in the network require both visibility upstream and downstream to achieve this. Access to data is necessary using digital and cloud technologies. Visibility allows the supply chain sight of customer demand in real time. This is critical to the smooth flow through the chain, avoiding system dynamics that might disrupt the flow. Bullwhips. Visibility has to be extended to storage facilities and transport logistics. Put differently, the total system needs visibility. Coordinating partner activities in supply chains has always been the key to success. There's that word again. Visibility is key to effective coordination. Both technical skills and visibility are required when it comes to fashioning business success. Supply chain processes always begin and end with the customer. Start with an order, completed when payment and fulfilment happens. After all, it's the customer that creates value by paying the bill. Before we get to this stage, we need the digital infrastructure to manage flows of materials, inventories and movements within the supply system. The physical infrastructure consists of transport, storage and handling facilities, production hubs, administrative offices in multiple locations, wholesale and retail space. Within this supply chain, we have goods, services, data and cash movements, supported by people and technologies to create and deliver value. Ultimately, this coordinating activity will determine success in terms of satisfying customer demand profitably. This is why supply chain management is central to fashioning business success. There was a very comprehensive article in Nature this week telling a story of COVID vaccines 2021 in eight powerful charts. And some of the highlights from that, there's about 4.4 billion people that have had more than one dose of the vaccine, and that represents 56% of the world population. And it was all done at double quick time. The vaccines, unfortunately, haven't equitably been shared across the globe and that's still a problem that needs sorting out and it really causes a problem because no one's safe until everybody's vaccinated. More than 8 billion doses and there are 8 vaccines that have done most of the job. There are about 10 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine which have been delivered around the world since the middle of 2020 and about 8.5 billion of those Doses have been administered towards the end of 2021. Eight different vaccines 
make up the majority of those vaccinations. The University of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is the most popular, with close to two and a half billion people having been vaccinated with that particular vaccine. Coronavac, about 2.25 billion. Pfizer-BioNTech, about the same. Sinopharm, slightly lower, about 2.2 billion. Moderna, about 0.6 of a billion. Johnson & Johnson, around about 0.25 billion. Sputnik V, slightly lower, but around the same sort of figure. And then Barrett Biotech, about 0.15 of a billion. And the remainder of the vaccines make up the total, but that's lower than the biotech figure, the Barrett Biotech figure, just under what their, their number was. So you can see that the top eight account for the majority And in fact, it's a bit tighter than that because AstraZeneca, CoronaVac, BioNTech, Sinopharm and Moderna probably account for about 8 billion doses. The vaccines have made a huge impact on avoiding death and they've helped economies return to some semblance of activity. In countries with high coverage, infections have been uncoupled from death. Now that's an interesting statement because that means that if you're vaccinated you're far less likely to die. There's a higher probability that you'll live even if you catch the virus. The speed of development of the vaccines is the key to its success. There are 23 different vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 and they have already been approved for use around the world and hundreds more are in development. And that's faster than any vaccines in history. If you look back at the times taken for most vaccines, they've taken years, not months. And in the new year, we're looking at uh, development of a specific vaccine by a number of companies to fight the Omicron variant. And it's reckoned that this can be done in about 100 days, which is absolutely phenomenal. 470,000 deaths have been averted across 33 European countries in those aged 60 and over, according to the World Health Organization. The distribution of the vaccines has been effective. One of the problems is that it hasn't been distributed equitably across the world, and that needs to be sorted out. So supply chains and logistics need to kick in to ensure that happens after the policies have been made. The United Arab Emirates is one of the most vaccinated nations, and Chile and Cuba, where more than 200 doses have been administered per 100 people. At the opposite end of this scale, Tanzania, Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea, fewer than 20 people, 100, have received one dose. And it's this inequity that's a problem. In high-income countries, 83% of the eligible populations have had at least one shot. In low-income countries, that falls to 21%, according to Nature. It was expected that poorer nations would get increased supplies once demand began to fall in wealthy nations, but most are now administering boosters. There is an issue with waning immunity and rising variants. There were a number of variants in 2021, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and now, of course, Omicron. The effectiveness of each of the vaccines against the different variants is, of course, as one might expect, slightly different. But one of the issues that's currently on the agenda is this idea of waning immunity. And it's estimated that, for example, 
the AstraZeneca vaccination with about 70% efficacy can fall after about 140 days to below 40%. So that's quite significant. Some of the other vaccines perform slightly better and particularly Moderna and BioNTech have a lower waning immunity. So that's where we are with the supply of vaccines. But this supply chain going through all the stages from pre-clinical trials to phase one, phase two, phase three, in use and phase four delivery has been a rapid response. Researchers are now developing more than 300 COVID-19 vaccines in addition to the 23 already in use around the world and that will definitely help. 84 are in early stage clinical trials and 40 are much later stages of development. So good news. Now, there's a few things in the news I just want to catch up on from this week. And the first one is the inflation measure in the United Kingdom, which has gone up to 5.1%. You might remember in a previous episode, I mentioned it was 4.2% for October, but in November it rose again to 5.1%. The Bank of England's forecast for the year-end position was 4%, and I said it already exceeded that at 4.2% in October. And now it's 5.1% and it's still going to go up because there's still things feeding through the pipeline. Energy cost rises, fuel rises, the additional cost of servicing things, um, the Brexit issues still ongoing and COVID, of course, which now has the Omicron variant. And that's likely to cause more closures and certainly disrupt the economy further. So it's looking likely that in 2022, it's steady as she goes, more of the same, more disruption, uh, which is a bit disappointing, having thought we probably were coming through the worst of it towards the end of the summer period. But there's a bit of regression at the moment. But hopefully 2022 will be better for people. So... That's where we are with that. And also there's the factory gate prices coming through with, um, I think they were around 8%. So in terms of inflation, of course, these are all averages. So some products will be higher priced and shorter and some will be less. So it's not everything, but it's it's certainly on average going to mean rising prices and that will cause some distress to businesses and to consumers because it's consumers in the end that pick up the tabs for the costs as they feed through and there might be a bit of a lag in the system but uh, no doubt there's going to be a cost and we've still got all those problems with shortages of labor the driver problems the ship problems the container box problems those are still all issues that haven't been resolved fully and are unlikely to get resolved anytime soon. Wholesale petrol prices a year ago on the 1st of December were about 72 pence per litre, and diesel was around 80 pence per litre. The price at the pumps on that date were about 105 pence for 
petrol and 115 for diesel. This year on the 1st of December, the wholesale price of petrol stood at 101 pence and the pump price 147 pence. And diesel stood at 109 pence on the 1st of December per litre and that's selling at the pump for 150 pence. So quite a big profit between the wholesale and retail prices of fuel. And of course, as fuel increases, then that's putting pressure on costs right throughout the supply chain. And it's now probably the highest it's been, but it's all to do with the barrel price of oil. And the barrel price of oil has fallen and supply has gone up in the past few weeks. So we would expect to start seeing lower prices at the pump. I spoke to one transport executive who told me that uh, their company was experiencing a 33% increase in the cost of diesel fuel from just a year ago. And fuel prices have been one of the major concerns because that pushes cost right up across the whole supply chain. Another snippet I came across this week was wholesale gas prices rising by 70% due to the short supply from Russia. This is likely to feed through to business energy costs in the new year, and it's also likely to mean 50% price rises next year for consumers of energy, domestic consumers that is. The new outbreak of Omicron has seen restrictions reimposed on free movements and this means that uh, it could affect supply chain movements across Europe. And one person contacted me this week to say that they had a surprise when they took a parcel, which was a present for someone in France, posted from the United Kingdom. And when they went to the post office, they were asked to fill in a long form. That took quite a while. And they were told that if they failed to fill it in properly, the goods wouldn't be delivered or they'd be returned. David Frost, who's the Minister for Brexit in the United Kingdom, or was until just a couple of days ago, has resigned from his post, saying he doesn't agree with the way the government is headed. Liz Truss has been appointed, and she's the Foreign Secretary, with a claim to fame for agreeing a deal with Australia, which, actually, the farmers and the food industry are not very impressed with. So let's hope she does better with this new challenge. At the end of October 2021, the Office for Budget Responsibility published a report on the impact of Brexit and COVID. And it clearly stated that gross domestic product would be down by 4% directly as a result of Britain's exit from the European Union. A further 2% lowering of GDP 
would be the impact of COVID. Personally, I think it will be interesting to see how much higher these figures might go on a reassessment during 2022. There's been a bit of a tech battle going on over the past year or so, as NVIDIA has tried to acquire ARM, a UK-based technology company that supplies microchips and other things to the industry. NVIDIA had planned to spend $80 billion or £60 billion to buy this chip technology provider based in the UK. But there are significant regulatory challenges impacting the deal. And the Federal Trade Commission in the US said that the proposed deal would give one of the largest chip companies control over computing technology and designs that competitors rely on. So they're not happy about it. The deal has been widely expected to fall apart. British regulators said last month they would look at investigating the deal. And the European Union too is also said to be looking at this deal. ARM licenses chips to major chip makers such as Apple, Qualcomm and Samsung Electronics. And it underpins the smartphone ecosystem. It was actually sold to Japan's SoftBank in 2016. NVIDIA is trying to make a case that it will benefit everybody and that they will certainly not be looking to monopolize the position. But hey, it takes a competitor out of the market. I was looking at some average costs of container boxes for both 20-foot and 40-foot containers traveling from London to various ports around the globe. And here are some of the prices that I came across. To go from London to New York cost £2,445 for a 20-foot box or £4389 for a 40-foot box. To go to Los Angeles... 20-foot box, £3,227 and £3,938 for a 40-foot box. So a price differential from the 20-foot to the 40-foot, not very big there. It's only £700, whereas if you look at the New York price, it was almost double. To take a 40-foot container to Sydney, Australia, £3,160. So it's actually cheaper to go to Australia with a 40-foot container than it is to go to the United States, which doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, the distance involved is much greater to get to Australia. And if you think about it, that's probably also to do with, uh, you know that if you're going to take a container box at this point in time to the United States, you're going to face delays unloading the box in New York and so on. So perhaps the price reflects that. To go to Melbourne, it's the same sort of price. 3160 for a 40-foot container and £2,108 for a 20-foot container. Same price for Auckland. If you go to Montreal, it's £4,500 for a 40-foot container or £3,442 for a 20-foot container. Vancouver's a bit cheaper, 3925 for a 40-foot, 3136 for a 20-foot. To go to France, to go to Le Havre, 2150 
is the pound price for 40-foot container and 1304 for a 20-foot container. To travel to Spain, Barcelona, £2,620 for a 40-foot container and just £2,000 thereabouts for a 20-foot container. Amsterdam, 2,150, 40-foot, 1,304 for a 20-foot. Hamburg, 1,561, 40-foot, 1,302, 20-foot. And the price to go to Dublin, I mean, seems quite out of proportion. It's 1,890 pounds for a 40-foot container, which seems rather expensive, and 1,424 for a 20-foot container, which again seems expensive when you compare Hamburg and Amsterdam as other destinations. I know it's on the wrong side and there's a bit further to travel. And you think London to Hamburg and Amsterdam is possibly shorter than going to Dublin. You go to the United Arab Emirates, it's 3,177 for a 40 foot and 2,394 for a 20 foot container. To go to Genoa, 2,500 pounds for a 20 foot. Lisbon, 2,621 pounds for a 40 foot and 2,000 for a 20 foot Stockholm, 1350, 40 foot, 1016, 20 foot. To go to Mumbai, 4,000 pounds thereabouts for a 40 foot and 3,000 for a 20 foot. Singapore, 4,600 against a 20 foot of 3,500. So you get the general idea of some of these prices. To go to Hong Kong, it's £4,290 for a 40 foot and £3,234 for a 20 foot. Cape Town costs £3,456, 40 foot, £2,246 for a 20 foot. And Shanghai, £3,856, 40 foot and 2900 for a 20 foot container. So all in all, prices are up by about 500% on average on what they were this time last year. So that's a Massive increase for anyone doing global trade by shipping. And remember, 90% of goods are carried that way. Well, that's about it for this episode of the Chain Reaction Podcast. This will be our last news podcast before Christmas, and we'll be back in the new year, or just before the new year, with... uh, our outlook for 2022. Don't forget in the meantime to listen to the special editions, The Ghost of Christmas Past, Present and Future. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. We wish
wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.